This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Christine Blashford, www.wokeupthismorning.co.uk. The Price of Love by Arnold Bennett. Chapter 4 In the Night. Part 1 Louis stood hesitant and slightly impatient in the parlour alone. A dark blue cloth now covered the table, and in the centre of it was a large copper jar containing an evergreen plant. Of the feast no material trace remained except a few crumbs on the floor, but the room was still pervaded by the emotional effluence of the perturbed souls who had just gone, and Louis felt it, though without understanding. Throughout the evening he had, of course, been preoccupied by the consciousness of having in his pocket banknotes to a value unknown. Several times he had sought for a suitable opportunity to disclose his exciting secret, but he had found none. In practice he could not say to his aunt, before Julian and Rachel, "'Auntie, I picked up a lot of banknotes on the landing. You really ought to be more careful.' He could not even in any way refer to them. The dignity of Mrs. Maldon had intimidated him. He had decided, after Julian's announcement of departure, that he would hand them over to her, simply and undramatically, and with no triumphant air, as soon as he and she should for a moment be alone together.' Then Mrs. Maldon vanished upstairs, and she had not returned. Rachel also had vanished, and he was waiting. He desired to examine the notes, to let his eyes luxuriously rest upon them, but he dared not take them from his pocket, lest one or other of the silent-footed women might surprise him by a sudden entrance. He fingered them as they lay in their covert, and the mere feel of them raised exquisite images in his mind, and at the same time the whole room and every object in the room was transformed into a secret witness which spied upon him, disquieted him, and warned him. But the fact that the notes were intact, that nothing irremediable had occurred, reassured him and gave him strength, so that he could defy the suspicions of those senseless surrounding objects. Within the room there was no sound but the faint regular hiss of the gas and an occasional falling together of coal in the weakening fire. Overhead, from his aunt's bedroom, vague movements were perceptible. Then these ceased absolutely. The tension, increasing, grew too much for him, and with a curt gesture and a self-conscious expression between a smile and a frown, he left the parlour and stood to listen in the lobby. Not for several seconds did he notice the heavy ticking of the clock close to his ear, nor the chill draught that came under the front door. He gazed up into the obscurity at the top of the stairs. The red glow of the kitchen fire in the distance to the right of the stairs caught his attention at intervals. He was obsessed, almost overpowered, by the mysteriousness of the first floor. What had happened? What was happening? And suddenly an explanation swept into his brain, the obvious explanation. His aunt had missed the banknotes, and was probably at that very instant working herself into an anguish. What ought he to do? Should he run up and knock at her door? He was spared a decision by the semi-miraculous appearance of Rachel at the top of the stairs. She started. "'Oh, how you frightened me!' she exclaimed in a low voice. He answered weakly, charmingly. "'Did I?' "'Will you please come and speak to Mrs. Maldon? She wants you.' "'In her room?' Rachel nodded and disappeared before he could ask another question. With heart beating, he ascended the stairs by twos. Through the half-open door of the faintly lit room which he himself would occupy, he could hear Rachel active, and then he was at the closed door of his aunt's room. "'I must be jolly careful how I do it,' he thought, as he knocked. Part 2 He was surprised and impressed to see Mrs. Maldon in bed. She lay on her back with her striking head raised high on several pillows. Nothing else of her was visible. The purple eiderdown covered the whole bed without a crease. "'Hello, Auntie,' he greeted her, instinctively modifying his voice to the soft gentleness proper to the ordered and solemn chamber. Mrs. Maldon, moving her head, looked at him in silence. He tiptoed to the foot of the bed, and leaned on it gracefully, 
and as in the parlour his shadow had fallen on the table, so now, with the gas just behind him, it fell on the bed. The room was chilly, and had a slight pharmaceutical odour. Mrs. Molden said, with a weak effort, "'I was feeling faint, and Rachel thought I'd better get straight to bed. I'm an old woman, Louis.' "'She hasn't missed them,' he thought in a flash, and said aloud, "'Nothing of the sort, auntie.' He was aware of the dim reflection of himself in the mirror of the immense Victorian mahogany wardrobe to his left. Mrs. Molden again hesitated before speaking. "'You aren't ill, are you, auntie?' he said, in a cheerful, friendly whisper. He was touched by the poignant pathos of her great age and her debility. It rent his heart to think that she had no prospect but the grave. She murmured, ignoring his question. "'I just wanted to tell you that you needn't go down home for your night things, unless you specially want to, that is. I have all that's necessary here, and I've given orders to Rachel.' "'Certainly, auntie. I won't leave the house. That's all right.' No, she assuredly had not missed the notes. He was strangely uplifted. He felt almost joyous in his relief. Could he tell her now as she lay in her bed? Impossible. He would tell her in the morning. It would be cruel to disturb her now with such a revelation of her own negligence. He vibrated with sympathy for her, and he was proud to think that she appreciated the affectionate, comprehending, subdued intimacy of his attitude towards her as he leaned gracefully on the foot of the bed, and that she admired him. He did not know, or rather he absolutely did not realise, that she was acquainted with out against his good fame. He forgot his sins with the insouciance of an animal. "'Don't stay up too late,' said Mrs. Molden, as it were, dismissing him. "'A long night will do you no harm for once in a way,' she smiled. "'I know you'll see that everything's locked up.' He nodded soothingly, and stood upright. "'You might turn the gas down, rather low.' He tripped to the gas-bracket, and put the room in obscurity. The light of the street-lamp irradiated the pale green blinds of the two windows. "'That do?' "'Nicely, thank you. Good night, my dear. No, I'm not ill, but you know I have these little attacks, and then the bed's the best place for me.' Her voice seemed to expire. He crept across the wide carpet and departed with the skill of a trained nurse, and inaudibly closed the door. From the landing the whole of the rest of the house seemed to offer itself to him in the night as an enigmatic and alluring field of adventure. Should he drop the notes under the chair on the landing where he had found them? He could not, he could not. He moved to the head of the stairs, past the open door of the spare bedroom, which was now dark. He stopped at the head of the stairs, and then descended. The kitchen was lighted. "'Are you there?' he asked. "'Yes,' replied Rachel. "'May I come?' "'Why, of course,' her voice trembled. He went towards the other young creature in the house. The old one lay above, in a different world, remote and foreign. He and Rachel had the ground floor and all its nocturnal enchantment to themselves. Part Three. Mechanically, as he went into the kitchen, he drew his cigarette-case from his pocket. It was the proper gesture of a man in any minor crisis. He was not a frequenter of kitchens, and this visit, even more than the brief first one, seemed to him to be adventurous. Mrs. Molden's kitchen, or rather Rachel's, was small, warm, though the fire was nearly out, and agreeable to the eye. On the left wall was a deal-dresser, full of crockery, and on the right, under the low window, a narrow deal-table. In front, opposite the door, gleamed the range, and on either side of the range were cupboards with oak-grained doors. There was a bright steel fender before the range, and then a hearth-rug on which stood an oak rocking-chair. The floor was a friendly checker of red and black tiles. On the high mantelpiece were canisters and an alarm-clock, and utensils. Sundry other utensils hung on the walls, among the coloured images of sweet-girls and Norse-like men offered by grocers and butchers under the guise of almanacs and cupboard doors ajar dimly disclosed other utensils still, so that the kitchen had the effect of a novel, comfortable kind of workshop, which effect was helped by the clothes-dryer that hung on pulley-ropes from the ceiling next to the gas-pendant and to a stalactite of onions. The uncurtained window, instead of showing black, gave on another interior, whitewashed and well illuminated by the kitchen gas. 
This other interior had, under a previous tenant of the property, been a lean-to greenhouse, but Mrs. Molden esteeming a scullery before a greenhouse, it had been modified into a scullery. There it was that Julian Molden had preferred to make his toilet. One had to pass through the scullery in order to get from the kitchen into the yard, and the light of day had to pass through the imperfectly transparent glass roof of the scullery in order to reach the window of the unused room behind the parlour, and herein lay the reason why that room was unused, it being seldom much brighter than a crypt. At the table stood Rachel, in her immense pinafore apron, busy with knives and forks and spoons, and an enamel basin from which steam rose gently. Louis looked upon Rachel, and for the first time in his life liked an apron. It struck him as an exceedingly piquant addition to the young woman's garments. It suited her, it set off the tints of her notable hair, and it suited the kitchen. Without delaying her work, Rachel made the protector of the house very welcome. Obviously she was in a high state of agitation. For an instant Louis feared that the agitation was due to anxiety on account of Mrs. Molden. "'Nothing serious up with the old lady, is there?' he asked, pinching the cigarette to regularise the tobacco in it. "'Oh, no!' The exclamation, in its absolute sincerity, dissipated every trace of his apprehension. He felt gay, calmly happy, and yet excited, too. He was sure, then, that Rachel's agitation was a pleasurable agitation. It was caused solely by his entrance into the kitchen, by the compliment he was paying to her kitchen. Her eyes glittered, her face shone, her little movements were electric. She was intensely conscious of herself, all because he had come into her kitchen. She could not conceal, perhaps she did not wish to conceal, the joy that his near presence inspired. Louis had had few adventures, very few, and this experience was exquisite and wondrous to him. It roused not the fatuous coxcomb, nor the Lothario, but that in him which was honest and high-spirited. A touch of the male's vanity, not surprising, was to be excused. "'Mrs. Mulden said Rachel, had an idea that it was me who suggested your staying all night instead of your cousin. She raised her chin and peered at nothing through the window as she rubbed away at a spoon. "'But when?' Louis demanded, moving towards the fire. It appeared to him that the conversation had taken a most interesting turn. "'When? When you brought the train here for me, I suppose. And I suppose you explained to her that I had the idea all out of my own little head. I told her that I should never have dreamed of asking such a thing.' The susceptible and proud young creature indicated that the suggestion was one of Mrs. Molden's rare social errors, and that Mrs. Molden had had a narrow escape of being snubbed for it by the woman of the world now washing silver. "'I'm no more afraid of burglars than you are,' Rachel added. "'I should just like to catch a burglar here, that I should.' Louis indulgently doubted the reality of this courage. He had been too hastily concluding that what Rachel resented was an insinuation of undue interest in himself, whereas she now made it seem that she was objecting merely to any reflection upon her valour, which was much less exciting to him. Still, he thought that both causes might have contributed to her delightful indignation. "'Why was she so keen about having one of us to sleep here to-night?' Louis inquired. "'Well, I don't know that she was,' answered Rachel, "'if you hadn't said anything. Oh, but do you know what she said to me upstairs?' "'No.' She didn't want me even to go back to my digs for my things. Evidently she doesn't care for the house to be left even for half an hour. Well, of course, old people are apt to get nervous, you know, especially when they're not well. Funny, isn't it? There was perfect unanimity between them as to the irrational singularity and sad weakness of aged persons. Louis remarked, She said you would make everything right for me upstairs. I have done, I hope, said Rachel. Thanks awfully. One part of the table was covered with newspaper. Suddenly Rachel tore a strip off the newspaper, folded the strip into a spill, and, lighting it at the gas, tendered it to Louis's unlit cigarette. The climax of the movement was so quick and unexpected as almost to astound Louis, for he had been standing behind her, and she had not turned her head before making the spill. Perhaps there was a faint reflection of himself in the window, or perhaps she had eyes in her hair. Beyond doubt she was a strange, rare, angelic girl. 
the gesture with which she modestly offered the spill was angelic it was divine it was one of those phenomena which persist in a man's memory for decades at the very instant of its happening he knew that he should never forget it the man of fashion blushed as he inhaled the first smoke created by her fire rachel dropped the heavenly emblem all burning into the ash-bin of the range and resumed her work louis coughed any law against sitting down he asked you're very welcome she replied primly i didn't know i might smoke he said she made no answer at first but just as louis had ceased to expect an answer she said i should think if you can smoke in the sitting-room you can smoke in the kitchen shouldn't you i should said he there was silence but silence not disagreeable louis lolling in the chair and slightly rocking it watched rachel at her task she completely immersed spoons and forks in the warm water and then rubbed them with a brush like a large nail-brush giving particular attention to the inside edges of the prongs of the forks and then she laid them all wet on a thick cloth to the right of the basin but of the knives she immersed only the blades and took the most meticulous care that no drop of water should reach the handles i never knew knives and forks and things were washed like that observed louis they generally aren't said rachel but they ought to be i leave all the other washing up for the charwoman in the morning but i wouldn't trust these to her the charwoman had been washing up cutlery since before rachel was born they're all alike said rachel louis acquiesced sagely in this broad generalization as to charwomen why don't you wash the handles of the knives he queried it makes them come loose really do you mean to say you didn't know that water especially warm water with soda in it loosens the handles she showed astonishment but her gaze never left the table in front of her not me well i should have thought that everybody knew that some people use a jug and fill it up with water just high enough to cover the blades and stick the knives in to soak but i don't hold with that because of the steam you see steam's nearly as bad as water for the handles and then some people drop the knives wholesale into a basin just for a second to wash the handles but i don't hold with that either what i say is that you can get the handles clean with the cloth you wipe them dry with that's what i say and so there's soda in the water a little well i never knew that either it's quite a business it seems to me without doubt louis's notions upon domestic work were being modified with extreme rapidity in the suburb from which he sprang domestic work and in particular washing up had been regarded as base foul humiliating unmentionable a toil that any slut might perform anyhow it would have been inconceivable to him that he should admire a girl in the very act of washing up young ladies even in exclusive suburban families were sometimes forced by circumstances to wash up of that he was aware but they washed up in secret and in shame and it was proper for all parties to pretend that they never had washed up and here was rachel converting the horrid process into a dignified and impressive ritual she made it as fine as fine needlework so exact so dainty so proud were the motions of her fingers and her forearms obviously washing up was an art and the delicate operation could not be scamped nor hurried the triple pile of articles on the cloth grew slowly but it grew and then rachel having taken a fresh white cloth from a hook began to wipe and her wiping was an art she seemed to recognize each fork as a separate individuality and to attend to it as to a little animal whatever her view of charwomen never would she have said of forks that they were all alike louis felt in his hip pocket for his reserve cigarette case and rachel immediately said with her back to him have you really got a revolver or were you teasing just now in the parlour it was then that he perceived a small unframed mirror hung at the height of her face on the broad central perpendicular bar of the old-fashioned window-frame through this mirror the chit so he named her in his mind at the instant had been surveying him yes he said producing the second cigarette-case i was only teasing he lit a fresh cigarette from the end of the previous one well she said you did frighten mrs Molden. i was so sorry for her and what about you weren't you frightened oh no i wasn't frightened i guessed somehow you were only teasing 
"'Well, I just wasn't teasing, then,' said Louis triumphantly, yet with benevolence. And he drew a revolver from his pocket. She turned her head now, and glanced neutrally at the incontestable revolver for a second. But she made no remark whatever, unless the pouting of her tightly shut lips and a mysterious smile amounted to a remark. Louis adopted an indifferent tone. "'Strange that the old lady should be so nervous just to-night, isn't it? Seeing these burglars have been knocking about for over a fortnight. Is this the first time she's got excited about it?' "'Yes, I think it is,' said Rachel faintly, as it were submissively, with no sign of irritation against him. With their air of worldliness and mature wisdom they twittered on like a couple of sparrows, inconsequently, capriciously, and nothing that they said had the slightest originality, weight, or importance. But they both thought that their conversation was full of significance, which it was, though they could not explain it to themselves. What they happened to say did not matter in the least. If they had recited the Koran to each other, the inexplicable significance of their words would have been the same. Rachel faced him again, leaning her hands behind her on the table, and said with the most enchanting persuasive friendliness, "'I wasn't frightened, truly. I don't know why I looked as though I was.' "'You mean about the revolver in the sitting-room?' He jumped nimbly back after her to the revolver question. "'Yes, because I'm quite used to revolvers, you know. My brother had one. Only his was a colt. One of those long things. Your brother, eh?' "'Yes, did you know him?' "'I can't say I did,' Louis replied with some constraint. Rachel said with generous enthusiasm, "'He's a wonderful shot, my brother is.' Louis was curiously touched by the warmth of her reference to her brother. In the daily long monotonous column of advertisements, headed succinctly Money, in the Staffordshire Signal, there once used to appear the following invitation. We never refuse a loan to a responsible applicant. No fussy inquiries, distance no objection, reasonable terms, strictest privacy, three pounds to ten thousand pounds, apply personally or by letter. Lovelace Curzon, 7 Colclough Street, Knipe. Upon a day Louis had chosen that advertisement from among its rivals, and had written to Lovelace Curzon. But on the very next day he had come into his thousand pounds, and so had lost the advantage of business relations with Lovelace Curzon. Lovelace Curzon, as he had learnt later, was Reuben Fleckering, Rachel's father. Or more accurately, Lovelace Curzon was Reuben Fleckering, Jr., Rachel's brother, a young man in a million. Reuben Sr. had been for many years an entirely mediocre and ambitionless clerk in the large works where Julian Molden had learnt potting, when Reuben Jr., whom he blindly adored, had dragged him out of clerkship, and set him up as the nominal registered head of a money-lending firm. An amazing occurrence! At that time Reuben Jr. was a minor, scarcely eighteen, yet his turn for finance had been such that he had already amassed reserves, and, without a drop of Jewish blood in his veins, possessed confidence enough to compete in their own field with the acutest Hebrews of the district. Reuben Sr. was the youth's tool. In a few years Lovelace Curzon had made a mighty and terrible reputation in a world where expenditures exceed incomes, and then the subterranean news of the day, not reported in the signal, was that something serious had happened to Lovelace Curzon, and the two Fleckerings went to America, the father, as usual, hypnotised by the son, and they left no rack behind save Rachel. It was at this period, only a few months previous to the opening of the present narrative, that the district had first heard aught of the womenfolk of the Fleckerings. An aunt, Reuben Senior's sister, it appeared, had died several years earlier, since when Rachel had alone kept house for her brother and her father. According to rumour, the three had lived in the simplicity of relative poverty, utterly unvisited except by clients. No good smell of money had ever escaped from the small front room which was employed as an office into the domestic portion of the house. It was alleged that Rachel had existed in perfect ignorance of all details of the business. It was also alleged that when the sudden crisis arrived, her brother had told her that she would not be taken to America, and that, briefly, she must shift for herself in the world. It was alleged further that he had given her forty-five pounds. Why forty-five pounds and not fifty, no one knew. 
The whole affair had begun and finished, and the house was sold up in four days. Public opinion in the street and in Knipe blew violently against the two Rubens, but as they were on the Atlantic it did not affect them. Rachel, with scarcely an acquaintance in the world in which she was to shift for herself, found that she had a street full of friends. It transpired that everybody had always divined that she was a girl of admirable, efficient qualities. She behaved as though her brother and father had behaved in quite a usual and proper manner. Assistance in the enterprise of shifting for herself she welcomed, but not sympathy. The devotion of the Fleckring women began to form a legend. People said that Rachel's aunt had been another such creature as Rachel. Hence the effect on Louis, who, through his aunt and his cousin, was acquainted with the main facts and surmises of Rachel's glowing reference to the vanished Reuben. "'Where did your brother practice?' he asked. "'In the cellar.' "'Of course, it's easier with a long barrel.' "'Is it?' she said incredulously. "'You should see my brother's scorecard the first time he shot at that new miniature rifle range in Hanbridge. "'Why, is it anything special?' "'Well, you should see it. Five bulls, all cutting into each other.' "'I should have liked to see that.' "'I've got it upstairs in my trunks,' said she proudly. "'I dare say I'll show you it some time.' "'I wish you would,' he urged. Such loyalty moved him deeply. Louis had had no sisters, and his youthful suburban experience of other people's sisters had not fostered any belief that loyalty was an outstanding quality of sisters. Like very numerous young men of the day, he had passed an unfavourable judgment upon young women. He had found them greedy for diversion, amazingly ruthless in their determination to exact the utmost possible expensiveness of pleasure in return for their casual society, hard, cruelly clever in conversation, efficient in certain directions, but hating any sustained effort, and either socially or artistically or politically snobbish. Snobs all! Money-worshippers all! Well, nearly all! It mattered not whether you were one of the dandies or one of the hatless or Fletcherite corpse that lolled on foot or on bicycles, or shot on motorcycles through the prim streets of the suburb, the young women would not remain in dalliance with you for the mere sake of your beautiful eyes. Because they were girls, they would take all that you had and more, and give you nothing but insolence or condescension in exchange. Such was Louis's judgment, and scores of times he had confirmed it in private saloon-lounge talk with his compeers. It had not, however, rendered the society of these unconscionable and cold female creatures distasteful to him, not a bit. He had even sought it and been ready to pay for that society in the correct manner, even to imperturbably beggaring himself of his final sixpence in order to do the honours of the latest cinema. Only he had a sense of human superiority. It certainly did not occur to him that in the victimised young men there might exist faults which complemented those of the parasitic young women." And now he contrasted these young women with Rachel, and he fell into a dreamy mood of delight in her, her gesture in lighting his cigarette, marvellous, tear-compelling. Flippancy dropped away from him. She liked him. With the most alluring innocence she did not conceal that she liked him. He remembered that the last time he called at his aunt's he had remarked something strange, something disturbing, in Rachel's candid demeanour towards himself. He had made an impression on her. He had given her the lightning-stroke. No shadow of a doubt as to his own worthiness crossed his mind. What did cross his mind was that she was not quite of his own class. In the suburb, where sets are divided one from another by unscalable barriers, she could not have aspired to him, but in the kitchen, now become the most beautiful and agreeable and romantic interior that he had ever seen, in the kitchen he could somehow perceive with absolute clearness that the snobbery of caste was silly, negligible, laughable, contemptible. Yes, he could perceive all that. Life in the kitchen seemed ideal, life with that loyalty and that candour and that charm and that lovely seriousness. Moreover, he could teach her. She had already blossomed in a fortnight. She was blossoming. She would blossom further. Odd that, when he had threatened to pull out a revolver, she, so accustomed to revolvers, should have taken a girlish alarm. That queer detail of her behaviour was extraordinarily seductive. 
but far beyond everything else it was the grand loyalty of her nature that drew him. He wanted to sink into it as into a bed of down. He really needed it. Enveloped in that loving loyalty of a creature who gave all and demanded nothing, he felt that he could truly be his best self, that he could work marvels. His eyes were moist with righteous ardour. The cutlery reposed in a green-lined basket. She had doffed the apron and hung it behind the scullery door. With all the delicious curves of her figure newly revealed, she was reaching the alarm-clock down from the mantelpiece, and then she was winding it up. The ratchet of the wheel clacked, and the hurried ticking was loud. In the grate of the range burned one spot of gloomy red. "'Your bedtime, I suppose,' he murmured, rising elegantly. She smiled. She said, "'Shall you look up, or shall I?' "'Oh, I think I know all the tricks,' he replied, and thought, "'She's a pretty direct sort of girl, anyway.'" Part 4 About an hour later he went up to his room. It was a fact that everything had been made right for him. The gas burned low. He raised it, and it shone directly upon the washstand, which glittered with the ivory glaze of large earthenware, and the whiteness of towels that displayed all the creases of their folding. There was a new cake of soap in the ample soap-dish, and a new toothbrush in a sheath of transparent paper lay on the marble. Rather complete this, he reflected. The nail-brush, an article in which he specialised, was worn, but it was worn evenly and had cost good money. The water-bottle dazzled him, its polished clarity was truly crystalline. He could not remember ever having seen a toilet array so shining with strict cleanness. Indeed, it was probable that he had never set eyes on an absolutely clean water-bottle before. The qualities associated with water-bottles in his memory were semi-opacity and spottiness. The dressing-table matched the watchstand. A carriage clock in leather had been placed on the mantelpiece. In front of the mantelpiece was an old embroidered fire-screen. Peeping between the screen and the grate, he saw that a fire had been scientifically laid, ready for lighting, but some bits of paper and oddments on the top of the coal showed that it was not freshly laid. The grate had a hob at one side, and on this was a small bright tin kettle. The bed was clearly a good bed, resilient, softly garnished. On it was stretched a long striped garment of flannel with old-fashioned pearl buttons at neck and sleeves, an honest garment quite surely unshrinkable. No doubt in the sixties, long before the mind of man had leapt to the fine perverse conception of the decorated pyjama, this garment had enjoyed the fullest correctness. Now, after perhaps forty years in the cupboards of Mrs. Molden, it seemed to recall the more excellent attributes of an already forgotten past, and to rebuke what was degenerate in the present. Louis, ranging over his experiences in the disorderly and mean pretentiousness of the suburban home, and in the discomfort of various lodgings, appreciated the grave, comfortable benignity of that bedroom. Its appeal to his senses was so strong that it became for him almost luxurious. The bedroom at his latest lodgings was full of boot-trees and trouser-stretchers and coat-holders, but it was a paltry thing and a grimy. He saw the daily and hourly advantages of marriage with a loving, simple woman whose house was her pride. He had a longing for solidities, certitudes, and righteousness. Musing delectably, he drew aside the crimson curtain from the window and beheld the same prospect that Rachel had beheld on her walk towards Friendly Street, the obscurity of the park, the chain of lamps down the slope of Moorthorne Road, and the distant fires of industry still further beyond, towards Toft End. He had hated the foul, sordid, ragged prospects and vistas of the five towns when he came new to them from London, and he had continued to hate them. They desolated him. But to-night he thought of them sympathetically. It was as if he was divining in them, for the first time, a recondite charm. He remembered what an old citizen named Dane had said one evening at the Conservative Club. "'People may say what they choose about Bursley. I've just returned from London, and I tell thee I was glad to get back. I like Bursley.' A grotesque saying he had thought then, yet now he positively felt himself capable of sharing the sentiment. 
Rachel in the kitchen, and the kitchen in town, and the town amid those scarred and smoking hillocks, invisible phenomena, mysterious harmonies, the influence of the night solaced and uplifted him and bestowed on him new faculties of perception. At length, deciding, after characteristic procrastination, that he must really go to bed, he wound up his watch and put it on the dressing-table. His pockets had to be emptied and his clothes hung or folded. His fingers touched the notes in the left-hand outside pocket of his coat. Not for one instant had the problem of the banknotes been absent from his mind. Throughout the conversation with Rachel, throughout the interval between her retirement and his own, throughout his meditations in the bedroom, he had not once escaped from the obsession of the banknotes and their problem. He knew now how the problem must be solved. There was, after all, only one solution, and it was extremely simple. He must put the notes back where he had found them, underneath the chair on the landing. If advisable, he might rediscover them in the morning and surrender them immediately. But they must not remain in his room during the night. He must not examine them. He must not look at them. He approached the door quickly, lest he might never reach the door. But he was somehow forced to halt at the wardrobe, to see if it had coat-holders. It had one coat-holder. His hand was on the doorknob. He turned it with every species of precaution, and it complained loudly in the still night. The door opened with a terrible explosive noise of protest. He gazed into the darkness of the landing, and presently, by the light from the bedroom, could distinguish the vague boundaries of it. The chair, invisible, was on the left. He opened the door wider to the nocturnal riddle of the house. His hand clasped the notes in his pocket. No sound. He listened for the ticking of the lobby clock, and could not catch it. He listened more intently. It was impossible that he should not hear the ticking of the lobby clock. Was he dreaming? Was he under some delusion? Then it occurred to him that the lobby clock must have run down, or otherwise stopped. Clocks did stop. And then his heart bounded, and his flesh crept. He had heard footsteps somewhere below, or were the footsteps merely in his imagination? Alone in the parlour, after Rachel had gone to bed, he had spent some time gazing at the signal, for there had been absolutely nothing else to do, and he could not have thought of sleep at such an early hour. It is true that, with his intense preoccupations, he had for the most part gazed uncomprehendingly at the signal. The tale of the latest burglaries, however, had, by virtue of its intrinsic interest, reached his brain through his eyes, and had impressed him, despite preoccupations. And now, as he stood in the gloom at the door of his bedroom, and waited feverishly for the sound of more footsteps, it was inevitable that visions of burglars should disturb him. The probability of burglars visiting any particular house in the town was infinitely slight. His common sense told him that. But supposing, just supposing, that they actually had chosen his aunt's abode for their prey— Conceivably they had learnt that Mrs. Maldon was to have a large sum of money under her roof. Conceivably a complex plan had been carefully laid. Conceivably one of the great burglaries of criminal history might be in progress. It was not impossible. No wonder that with banknotes loose all over the place, his shockingly negligent auntie should have special qualms concerning burglars on that night of all nights. Fortunate indeed that he carried a revolver, that the revolver was loaded, and that he had some skill to use it. A dramatic surprise, his gun, and the man behind it, for burglars, who had no doubt counted on having to deal with a mere couple of women, he had but to remove his shoes and creep down the stairs. He felt at the revolver in his pocket. Often had he pictured himself in the act of calmly triumphing over burglars or other villains. Then, with no further hesitation, he silently closed the door, on the inside. How could there be burglars in the house? The suspicion was folly. What he had heard could be naught but the nocturnal cracking and yielding of an old building at night. Was it not notorious that the night was full of noises? And even if burglars had entered, better safe to ignore them. They could not make off with a great deal, for the main item of prey happened to be in his own pocket. Let them search for the treasure. If they had the effrontery to come searching in his bedroom, he would give them a reception. Let them try. He looked at the revolver, holding it beneath the gas. Could he aim it at a human being? 
or another explanation possibly rachel having forgotten something or having need of something had gone downstairs for it he had not thought of that but what more natural sudden toothache a desire for laudanum a visit to a store cupboard such was the classic order of events he listened secure within the four walls of his bedroom he smiled he could have fancied that he heard an electric bell ring ever so faintly at a distance in the next house in the next world he laughed to himself then at length he moved again towards the door and he paused in front of it there were no burglars the notion of burglars was idiotic he must put the notes back under the chair his whole salvation depended upon his putting the notes back under the chair on the landing an affair of two seconds with due caution he opened the door and simultaneously at the very self-same instant he most distinctly heard the click of the latch of his aunt's bedroom door next to his own now in a horrible quandary trembling and perspiring he felt completely nonplussed he pushed his own door too but without quite closing it for fear of a noise and edged away from it towards the fireplace had his aunt wakened up and felt a misgiving about the notes and found that they were not where they ought to be no further sound came through the crack of his door in the dwelling absolute silence seemed to be established he stood thus for an indefinite period in front of the fireplace the brain's action apparently suspended until his agitation was somewhat composed and then because he had no clear plan in his head he put his hand into the pocket containing the notes and drew them out and immediately he was aware of a pleasant feeling of relief as one who after battling against a delicious and shameful habit yields and is glad the beauty of the notes was eternal no use could stale it their intoxicating effect on him was just as powerful now as before supper and now as then the mere sight of them filled him with a passionate conviction that without them he would be ruined his tricks to destroy the suspicions of horrocleave could not possibly be successful within twenty-four hours he might be in prison if he could not forthwith command a certain sum of money and even possessing the money he would still have an extremely difficult part to play it would be necessary for him to arrive early at the works to change notes for gold in the safe to erase many of his pencilled false additions to devise a postponement of his crucial scene with horrocleave and lastly to invent a plausible explanation of the piling up of a cash reserve if he had not been optimistic and an incurable procrastinator and a believer in luck at the last moment he would have seen that nothing but a miracle could save him if horrocleave were indeed suspicious happily for his peace of mind he was incapable of looking a fact in the face against all reason he insisted to himself that with the notes he might reach salvation he did not trouble even to estimate the chances of the notes being traced by their numbers such is the magic force of a weak character but he powerfully desired not to steal the notes or any of them the image of rachel rose between him and his temptation her honesty candour loyalty had revealed to him the beauty of the ways of righteousness he had been born again in her glance he swore he would do nothing unworthy of the ideals she had unconsciously set up in him he admitted that it was supremely essential for him to restore the notes to the spot where he had removed them and yet if he did so and was lost what then for one second he saw himself in the dock at the police court in the town hall awful hallucination if it became reality what use then his obedience to the new ideal better to accomplish this one act of treason to the ideal in order to be able for ever afterwards to obey it and to look rachel in the eyes was it not so he wanted advice he wanted to be confirmed in his own opportunism as a starving beggar may want food and in the midst of all this torture of his vacillations he was staggered and overwhelmed by the sudden noise of mrs Molden's door brusquely opening and of an instant loud firm knock on his own door the silence of the night was shattered as by an earthquake almost mechanically he crushed the notes in his left hand crushed them into a ball and the knuckles of that hand turned white with the muscular tension are you up a voice demanded it was rachel's voice yes he answered and held his left hand over the screen in front of the fireplace may i come in 
and with the word she came in. She was summarily dressed, and very pale, and her hair more notable than ever was down. As she entered, he opened his hand and let the ball of notes drop into the littered grate. Part five. "'Anything the matter?' he asked, moving away from the region of the hearthrug. She glanced at him with a kind of mild indulgence, as if to say, "'Surely you don't suppose I should be wandering about in the night like this if nothing was the matter?' She replied, speaking quickly and eagerly, "'I'm so glad you aren't in bed. I want you to go and fetch the doctor at once.' "'Auntie ill?' She gave him another glance, like the first, as if to say, "'I'm not ill, and you aren't, and Mrs. Maldon is the only other person in the house.' "'I'll go instantly,' he added in haste. "'Which doctor?' "'Yardley, in Park Road. It's near the corner of Axe Street. You'll know it by the yellow gate, even if his lamp isn't lighted.' "'I thought old Hawley up at Hillport was Auntie's doctor.' "'I believe he is, but you couldn't get up to Hillport in less than half an hour, could you?' "'Not so serious as all that, is it?' "'Well, you never know. Best to be on the safe side. It's not quite like one of her usual attacks. She's been upset. She actually went downstairs.' "'I thought I heard somebody. Did you hear her, then?' "'No, she rang for me afterwards. There's a little electric bell over my bed from her room.' "'And I heard that, too,' said Louis. "'Will you ask Dr. Yardley to come at once?' "'I'm off,' said he. "'What a good thing I wasn't in bed.' "'What a good thing you're here at all,' Rachel murmured, suddenly smiling. He was waiting anxiously for her to leave the room again, but instead of leaving it she came to the fireplace and looked behind the screen. He trembled. "'Oh, that kettle is there! I thought it must be!' and picked it up. Then, with the kettle in one hand, she went to a large cupboard let into the wall opposite the door and opened it. "'You know Park Road, I suppose?' she turned to him. "'Yes, yes, I'm off.' He was obliged to go, surrendering the room to her. As he descended the stairs he heard her come out of the room. She was following him downstairs. "'Don't bang the door,' she whispered. "'I'll come and shut it after you.' The next moment he had undone the door, and was down the front steps and in the solitude of Biker's Lane. He ran up the street, full of the one desire to accomplish the errand and be back again in the spare bedroom alone. The notes were utterly safe where they lay, and yet astounding events might happen. Was it not a unique coincidence that on this very night, and no other, his aunt should fall ill, and that as a result Rachel should take him unawares at the worst moment of his dilemma? And further, could it be the actual fact, as he had been wildly guessing only a few minutes earlier, that his aunt had at last missed the notes? Could it be that it was the discovery which had upset her and brought on an attack? An attack of what? He swerved at the double into Park Road, which was a silent desert watched over by forlorn gas-lamps. He saw the yellow gate. The yellow gate clanked after him. He searched in the deep shadow of the porch for the button of the night-bell, and had to strike a match in order to find it. He rang, waited, and waited, rang again, waited, rang a third time, keeping his finger hard on the button, then arose and expired a flickering light in the hall of the house. "'That'll do, that'll do, you needn't wear the bell out!' He could hear the irritated accents through the glazed front door. A dim figure in a dressing-gown opened. "'Are you Dr. Yardley?' Louis gasped between rapid breaths. "'What is it?' the question was savage. With his extraordinary instinctive amiability, Louis smiled naturally and persuasively. "'You're wanted at Mrs. Maldon's, bikers. Awfully sorry to disturb you.' "'Oh,' said the dressing-gown, in a changed, interested tone. "'Mrs. Maldon's, right, I'll follow you.' "'You'll come at once,' Louis urged. "'I shall come at once.' The door was curtly closed. "'So that's how you call a doctor in the middle of the night,' thought Louis, and ran off. He had scarcely deciphered the man's face. The return, being chiefly downhill, was less exhausting. As he approached his aunt's house, he saw that there was a light on the ground floor, as well as in the front bedroom. The door opened as he swung the gate. The lobby gas had been lighted. Rachel was waiting for him. Her hair was tied up now. The girl looked wise, absurdly so. It was as though she was engaged in the act of being equal to the terrible occasion. "'He's coming,' said Louis. "'You've been frightfully quick,' said she, as if triumphantly. She appeared to glory in the crisis.' 
He passed within as she held the door. He was frantic to rush upstairs to the fireplace in his room, but he had to seem deliberate. "'And what next?' he inquired. "'Well, nothing. It'll be best for you to sit in your bedroom for a bit. That's the only place where there's a fire. And it's rather chilly at this time of night.' "'A fire?' he repeated, incredulous and yet awestruck. "'I knew you wouldn't mind,' said she. "'It just happened there wasn't two drops of methylated spirits left in the house, and as there was a fire laid in your room, I put a match to it. I must have hot water ready, you see. And Mrs. Mulden only has one of those old-fashioned gas-stoves in her bedroom.' "'I see,' he agreed. They mounted the steps together. The grate in his room was a mass of pleasant flames, in the midst of which gleamed the bright kettle. "'How is she now?' he asked in a trance, and he felt as though it was another man in his own body who was asking. "'Oh, it's not very serious, I hope,' said Rachel, kneeling to coax the fire with a short, wiry poker. "'Only you never know. I'm just going in again. She seems to lose all her vitality. That's what's apt to frighten you.' The girl looked wise, absurdly, deliciously wise. The spectacle of her engaged in the high act of being equal to the occasion was exquisite. But Louis had no eye for it. End of chapter 4